0: My name is Diretladi. I am a Principal State Law Advisor for the Department of International Relations and Cooperation of South Africa. And today I would like to talk to you about the Security Council, the Al-Qaeda sanctions regime and due process. Um, The UN Security Council is the organ of the United Nations that has the primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. Um, to carry out its functions, uh, the Council can determine that a particular situation constitutes a threat to international peace and security, and can adopt measures to restore or maintain international peace and security. The measures that it decides can be either measures under Article 41, which are non-use non of force measures, or use of force measures under Article 42. Now. In recent years, what we have seen is we have seen um, an exponential growth in both the mandate and the powers of the Security Council. And there are four main interconnected reasons for this growth. The first one is that the powers of the Security Council are often said to be near limitless. They are often said to be constrained only by the vague principles and purposes of the UN Charter which we find in Article 1 of the Charter, Articles 1 and 2 of the Charter and also the amorphous use cogens whose content um, and consequences are often debated in academic literature. The second reason is that the Council has an extremely wide discretion to determine both whether a particular situation in fact constitutes um, a threat to international peace and security and also if it does, what measures to adopt in order to restore, maintain um, peace and security. A typical example of this is if one looks at the ever-expanding mandate of the Council to the point where just about any issue subject of course to political dynamics um, potentially falls within the mandate of the Security Council. So in recent years we have seen discussions about the possibility of including climate change on the agenda of the Council, there has been discussions on the Council relating to um, arms flow across borders, flows of people across borders and these kinds of issues and this shows the expanding mandate of the Council. The third reason for this exponential growth in the mandate and the powers of the Security Council is of course Article uh, 103 of the Charter. Um, under Article 103 of the Charter, obligations under the UN Charter takes priority over obligations flowing from other treaties. Uh, this has led others to interpret this. Um, that the Security Council action need not be constrained by international law and in fact that. Security Council is above international law. Uh, Finally, and this is an extremely important reason, uh, the current system of international law does not have a compulsory system of judicial adjudication, with the result that the practices of the council often have a tendency to entrench themselves as law and to become de facto legally permissible. Security Council action in response to international terrorism and in particular the Al-Qaeda Taliban regime is a case in point and illustrates the extent to which the powers of the Security Council when dealing with situations that it has determined to be a threat to international peace and security, um, how extensive these powers are. The Al-Qaeda sanctions regime was established in 1999 under UN Security Council Resolution 1267. And the nuts and bolts of the regime have been built over by successive resolutions, including most recently Resolution 1989 in 2011 and Resolution 2083 in 2012. The 1267 regime, also known as the Al-Qaeda Taliban regime, because until very recently it applied to both Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, The Al-Qaeda-Taliban sanctions regime imposes several measures on the Al-Qaeda and Taliban and also individuals and entities that are associated with them. More importantly, under the resolution, members of the United Nations are obliged to implement these measures. And of course, if one recalls Article 103, In implementing these obligations, because they are obligations that are flowing from the Charter, they take priority over any other treaty obligation that Member States may have. The specific measures that are to be adopted under the 1267 regime are firstly, an assets freeze, secondly, a travel ban, and finally, a prohibition on the supply of arms. It is important to note that an individual or an entity need not be shown to have done anything illegal only to be associated with um, the Al-Qaeda or the Taliban um, entities in in order to be listed. Resolutions, resolutions uh, 1267 and all the other resolutions after that also established a sanctions committee, which is referred to as the 1267 Sanctions Committee, which manages and administers a list of individuals and entities against whom the measures are to be imposed, and this is referred to as the consolidated list. Um, so essentially the 1267 uh, Sanctions Committee is responsible for the listing and the delisting of individuals. Uh, The Sanctions Committee is composed of all 15 members of the UN Security Council. However, and this is very important for the purposes of the due process discussion, um, the committee has very different decision-making processes to the Security Council. So, while decisions of the Security Council are made by a majority of nine members, with all permanent members, of course, having to agree in the committees, um, all members have a veto, so essentially decisions of the committee have to be unanimous, and all members of the committee have to have to agree and This, as I mentioned, has significant implications, particularly with respect to decisions relating to listing and delisting. Now, the resolutions also established an analytical support and monitoring team, um, and this analytical support and monitoring team provides expert support to the committee and provides recommendations to the committee on how to carry about its functions. In general, for an individual or entity to be listed, a member of the committee will propose a name for listing. And if the proposal is not objected to by other members within a a specified period of time, um, then that individual will be listed. If a single member objects, then a listing cannot happen. But in practice, only members of the Permanent Five and countries of nationality or residence um, ever have sufficient information on which to base a decision to object. The consequence of this is that if a country of nationality or country of residence is not on the council at a particular time, um, and other members of the council do not have a specific political interest with respect to that individual or entity, then in general the listing will take place. It is again important to re-emphasise that the proposal does not have to provide any evidence of wrongdoing on the part of the individual or entity that that is being proposed for a listing. Now, as a general rule, under the 1267 regime, before some of the innovations that we will talk about in just a moment, um, a delisting process would follow exactly the same procedure. So, there would be a proposal for delisting, and if there is no objection, then an individual would be delisted. But if a single member objects, then the delisting cannot take place. So again, the delisting also has to be um, unanimous. Now, In recent years, the 1267 regime has come under scrutiny and has been severely criticised. The major criticism against the 1267 regime has been that it is at odds with basic human rights and in particular due process standards. Now, it is always tempting to assess the 1267 regime from the perspective of legality, as some authors do. In other words, what these authors would do is, from the principles and purposes of human rights and use cogents, they would extract some obligations on the Council to respect human rights. However, given um, the emerging powers of the Council, coupled with the absence of a compulsory adjudicatory body to determine the legality of the Council's actions, Such an assessment is not helpful, as it does not lead to any impact on the Council's practices. However, what the Council does respond to is legal challenges in regional and domestic systems where the measures have to be adopted. And This response has been largely out of a fear of what one author referred to as national-level repudiation, which would of course disrupt the effectiveness of the regime. Important to note, these challenges do not assert that the regime is illegal or that the measures that have been adopted are illegal, only that the measures cannot be implemented in the respective domestic or regional systems because they don't meet the due process standards of those systems. The demands for a system with adequate protection for due process stems from the invasive nature of the measures that have been uh, adopted or that have uh, that are required in the 1267 regime. One author has observed that while the listing itself is short of being penal, it is dire in its economic and the stigma that it imparts. The measures potentially impact on the right to freedom of movement if one thinks, for example, about the, <coughs> the travel ban, um, certainly impacts on the right to property if one thinks about the asset freeze, and in fact, the mere fact of being listed negatively impacts on one's right to dignity. An invasion of these rights without adequate due process is seen as problematic. One of the essential elements for calls for due process is the call for the audi partem, or for the right of the individual who has been listed to be heard. This would necessitate, first of all, that sufficient information is provided to the listed individual or entity to enable the listed person to respond to the charges that are being made. The listing process, however, is such that the proposal brings forth little information such that it is difficult for an individual to respond um, to the charges that are made. Often, the proposing state would raise questions about confidentiality and national security as reasons not to provide further information. In any event, the listing, and of course the delisting process as well, is essentially a state-driven process with very little input from the individual, in other words, there is really no right to be heard under the the general structure of the 1267 regime. The second critical aspect of due process that is called for in respect of the Al-Qaeda Taliban regime is the right for effective remedies, and in particular, that an individual who has been listed should be able to bring a complaint to an independent judicial or quasi-judicial body to have their listing reviewed. Now, in my view, the nature of the body is not that important. What is important is whether the body would contain sufficient due process safeguards, number one, and secondly, whether that body would be in a position to offer relief to the individual or the entity. Now, these principles, of course, are contained in a number of academic articles, but they've also been enunciated in several decisions by courts and forums, domestically, regionally and also internationally, including the most famous one, the Cardi cases in the European system. The principal findings in the Cardi cases can be summarised as follows. The system violates the right to be heard in that listed persons were not afforded an opportunity to be heard in a meaningful way. In other words, individuals could not challenge the listing. Secondly, the committee is not obliged to provide reasons either for the listing or for the refusal to delist. In fact, in this respect, the court said, and I quote, that the information that, w- that was given was deemed to be general, unsubstantiated, vague and unparticularized, unquote. Now, The Council had to respond to these criticisms. Of course, while the Council is able to ignore the general and scholarly critique as pertains to the lawfulness of um, the actions and the 1267 regime, the threat of national-level repudiation that arises from judgments like CARDI created a very strong incentive for the Council to act. And In fact, the Council has done so by adopting a number of innovative improvements over the last couple of years. The first one came in 2005 in resolution 1617, which required a proposing state, a designating state, to provide a statement of case. Of course, a statement of case while providing some information, uh, the problem is that the statement of case remains vague and at best amounts to a set of allegations without proof of actual involvement in terrorist activities. Now, of course, if one looks at the resolutions, the resolutions justify this by saying that the regime is meant to be preventative and not punitive, so there isn't really a need for evidence. The second major improvement, and this was an extremely important improvement, was that in 2009, the Security Council adopted Resolution 1904, and this particular resolution included a major change to the delisting process in an effort to address the issue of lack of remedies and redress. Resolution 1904 created the office of the, of, of the Ombudsperson. Uh, essentially, the Ombudsperson receives petitions from individuals and on the basis of these petitions, the Ombudsperson would then collect information from a variety of sources including the individual Um, the designating state, the state of nationality, the state of residence and any other state or entity that might have some information and on the basis of this would assess all of this information and make relevant recommendations or observations to the committee on the listing. So it would decide or rather would recommend whether the individual should remain on the list or should be delisted. Ultimately, however, the decision remained with the committee using the same decision-making process. In fact, in a remark in passing in the Cardi judgment, the, court, um, the European Court of Justice held that even the ombudsperson p- process would not be sufficient to address its concerns since the ultimate decision for delisting remained essentially a diplomatic intergovernmental process and did not involve what the court referred to as an independent and impartial body. With this in mind, the Security Council had another opportunity to adopt further innovative measures, which it did in Resolution 1989 in 2011. And in Resolution 1989, um, the Security Council adopted a number of innovations. The first innovation, which is not directly linked with due process, and in fact may negatively affect due process, was that the Council decided to separate the Al-Qaeda sanctions regime from the Taliban sanctions regime. So the result of this was that going forward, the Taliban list would be Afghanistan-related and Afghanistan-specific. The implications of this, of course, is that um, one night, those individuals who were listed as um, associated with the Taliban had the protections offered by Resolution 1904 And when they woke up the following morning, they didn't have those protections. And so in that sense, it is a step from a due process perspective. But the second innovation, which came about from Resolution 1989, was the institution of sunset clauses with respect to delisting. And there's essentially two types of sunset clauses that are found in Resolution 1989. The first one is linked to the Ombudsperson. So, within 60 days of the Ombudsperson making a recommendation that an individual should be delisted, then that individual or entity would be delisted unless there was a unanimous decision to retain a delisting. So unless all the members of the committee did not agree with the Ombudsperson, then the individual or entity would be delisted. So essentially what it does is it reverses the decision-making procedures in favour of delisting. The second uh, sunset clause is linked to the designating state, and this provides for the delisting of an individual within 60 days of a proposal by the designating state. So if the designating state, in other words the state that originally proposed the individual for listing, um, proposes the delisting of that individual, then that individual would be delisted within 60 days again. unless members of the committee um, objected to that. There is however an important caveat to both of these sunset clauses. At any point within the 60 days waiting period the issue could be, seg- could be escalated by any member of the Security Council with the result that a decision on a delisting would take place in accordance with the normal rules of the Security Council. So essentially um, to delist the individual you would need a majority of nine states with all members of the, secu- of the permanent five um, also agreeing. So it kind of reverses it back. All of these developments, in particular the developments relating to the Ombudsperson and the institution of the sunset clauses are major achievement. However, it is clear from looking at the structure, particularly the possibility of escalating it back to the Security Council, that the process remains essentially diplomatic and subject to political constraints. And so while there have been um, some progress made, um, the issues and the concerns relating to due process in the 1267 regime remain. Thank you very much.